Hello, this is Daniel Jepson, and you are listening to the podcast, Your Word is a Lamp. This episode is focused on Jesus as the Word of God, based on John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was preached at Franklin Community Church on January 13, 2020. I hope it is a blessing to you. We are going to turn to the word here, and as you uh, know, if you've been with us last few weeks, during this Advent series, this series before Christmas Day, we're focusing on the names of Jesus, focusing on the different names. And so far, we've looked at the the name Emmanuel, we've looked at the title uh, Christ or Messiah. Today, we're looking at probably the most unusual one. Uh, It's one that may be familiar to us, but if you're reading this for the first time, it would strike you as odd that the Apostle John choose the Word to represent Jesus Christ, to be a name of Jesus Christ. So we're going to dive into this. We're going to be in John chapter 1. Now, I'm going to start on a little bit lighter note, Um, but there is a purpose in this, because we're going to talk about how some things, when we learn them, change uh, our previous interpretation of life. Some of you, how many of you have read Pride and Prejudice? It's a great book, yeah. I love that book. I've read it two or three times. And, uh, you know, the heroine there, she has her understanding of, um, of different men, and especially Mr. Darcy, whom she regards as incredibly arrogant and cruel at the beginning. But then she finds out more information, and it makes her reinterpret everything that she uh, thought about him, but also how she interpreted other things that happened in their, in their relationship in life. And sometimes that's what new information does. It makes you reinterpret things. Sometimes our first interpretations are not right. Um, I saw this online. Let's give this a try. So these are pictures that um, have deliberately misleading uh, titles or captions or interpretations, and we'll see how long it takes you because we're influenced by this. Man with curly hair about to dive into the water or a woman holding a sea urchin. Crowd at a concert or shag carpet under a chair. Some of you, some of you guys remember shag carpet. I don't remember. Homemade baguette and Nutella or a cat in a window planter. Abby likes this one. <laughs> Vista of Jupiter, looks pretty good. Or a marsh seen through binoculars. Sometimes these take a minute, don't they? Giraffes enjoying a Serengeti sunset or oil drills. Um. (laughs) Bunch of bananas, my wife will like this one, or a yellow snake. Ducks on a pond, this is my favorite here. Actually, those are the handlebars of motorcycles in a flooded park. Yeah. So we need a going through a cotton sheet or a rocket ship blasting through the clouds. A couple more. Cat on a table. This one took me a while. Paper bag or plastic bag on a table. Screenshot from the Matrix. Farmer in the field. All right. Just one or two more. Here's the last one. A beach at dusk or the bottom of a car door that needs fixing. Rusted out a little bit. Now, 
there's a, my point, and I do have one, is this. That when we understand the incarnation, it changes how we interpret life. So sometimes the way we interpret reality or the facts is not the full picture. We need to reevaluate, especially when we get new information or, or we understand information or, or something in, in a deeper way. It changes how we interpret the life that we have. It doesn't change the facts. It changes the way we interpret things. And that's going to be the main thing that I want to bring out today is that when we understand what the incarnation is and all that it represents, it changes us. It changes how we think about life, about God and our life together. And of course, the passage we're going to look at, the classic passage here, is in John chapter 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Father, would you give us insight into your word? There are some things, God, that we probably will not be able to understand. Our minds may not be sufficient to grasp all dimensions of reality or thought. But would you give us enough insight to understand in a deeper way what it means that you came among us? Would you help us to know, God, how this can change our lives? Thank you. Amen. All right. <clears throat> The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, probably a, a familiar verse to us. Uh, we're actually going to look at, <laughs> I think we need a new projector. These are, the Word, flesh, and dwelt are actually uh, entirely different color when I did the PowerPoint. Um, but anyway, we're going to look at three phrases here, the Word, flesh, and dwelt, to kind of delve into this a bit. First, the Word. When it says the word became flesh, in the Greek language, Paul or John is using the word logos. We get the word logic from it. And its basic meaning is the word, but it had a very wide semantic domain. And in fact, it was used in two, uh, two rather precise or more technical meanings. Let's go back a little bit here. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So here, obviously, Jesus is identified with the Word. We're told Jesus was God, the Word was God, and then there's also a distinction. The Word was with God. And, and so here we see the development of this Trinitarian theology. But notice, John's going to take pains to emphasize that the, there's a connection with the Word and the beginning of all things. And uh, John's writing to, to Greeks, but he's also writing to Jews. So it's worth pondering a little bit. Why did he write this with, with this audience in mind? Well, for the Greek thinkers, the logos meant the underlying rationality that governs the universe and by which it's formed. Something like the blueprint of the universe. Um, reason, rationality, logic are all tied into living or thinking with this blueprint. For the Jewish thinkers... The Logos was also the source of the world's creation, but for them, the emphasis was not on the intellectual blueprint, but also the moral blueprint, or the, the why. That's why for Jewish thinkers, the tangible expression of the Logos was the law in the whole Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Why, why for example, would David say he delights in the law of the Lord? And, you know, he's, oh, he's got verses and verses about this. Psalm 119. 
119, 175 verses exclaiming the joy, the beauty, the law of the Lord. Why? How do you get that from reading, you know, these commands about, you know, the, the garments of the priests and the sacrifices? Because he understood that in some way, the law was an expression of the heart of God. And, and yes, you had, to, you had to kind of work through that a little bit on how that worked. But for, he saw God in the law. That's why it was a delight to him. And again, that emphasis on the logos is there. So, <clears throat> what's the upshot of this? John very deliberately chooses the one term that both his Jewish and his Greek Gentile readers would associate with the guiding principle of creation. And he affirms this. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. But he goes farther in two ways. First, he emphasizes that the Logos is a person, not just a blueprint, not just abstract thought. Uh, creation is rational and moral, but it is also a person, because a person made it in line with this Logos or rationality. It was made for a person. Second, he emphasizes the complete equality, but distinction of this person with God. The Word was God, and the Word was uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, one way to think about this, I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one still, especially today. Some years ago, I made this terrarium, and in my mind, I had an idea of what I wanted the terrarium to look like. I wanted there to be of course, rocks and trees, and kind of a scene that I would enjoy being in. There's even a little fawn up here, you know, and everything. Now, in this scenario, if we represented, or if this represented the, the universe, the cosmos as a whole, the word is the guiding principle by which this was made that transcends this because it's before this and outside this. And that's the idea. It's not a pretty analogy, but the idea is that Everything here is made by a certain idea, a thought, a purpose, a will, and that's embodied in a person who himself is not in this terrarium or this creation. Do we get the startling word then? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. More wondrous than if I could become something like this. The immaterial, eternal person of God in Jesus Christ took on matter, took on flesh, such as we have. That is what he means by the word. Now let's, let's go with this a little bit further. The word became flesh. And the word for flesh in Greek is sark or sarkes. It's carne in Latin, and that's why you get the word incarnation. Uh, it's from the Latin translation of that. God took on flesh. Now, this is interesting. Uh, sometimes it's good to think about different words the author could have chosen or we might think would be more likely to chose from our point of view. Like, we might think, well, he became a man. Well, but John doesn't say that. Maybe he doesn't want to emphasize the maleness of this. Uh, or he could say he took on a body. There is a, a, a Greek word for body, soma, but it's not the same as, as sark. Sark has the idea of actual flesh. So the idea of like flesh and blood, or you get more trivial or graphic, chili con carne is chili with beef, with flesh in it. It's a very earthly world word. It's unmistakable. If you just said that Christ became a body or took on a body, it could almost paint the appearance 
it could be interpreted that way anyway, that he took this on as, or wore it as, as a type of appearance, almost like we would put on a garment. But that's not what he says. He became flesh in the most unmistakable term that he could have chosen. He is saying that God himself in the second person of the Trinity, the Logos by which everything is, is made and formed, took on a body like you and I have. He was just as much of a human with a human body as any of us here. And by the way, he is eternally that way. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't lose his physical body. We will all have physical bodies. We will not be disembodied personalities floating on the clouds. We will have a physical body, more physical than this in some ways. I'm not going to explain what I mean by that because take us too far afield. Read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis and you might get uh, an idea on what, how that could be possible. But this is the idea. He became this and lived among us. All right, one last word here. Incarnation, God became fully human. And the last word to dwell on is that word dwelt. Now, the, the noun form of this is going to be very familiar if you're a reader um, in Greek and, and, you know, you're reading along, you're one of the people John was originally writing to, and, uh, and you would know exactly what he was referring to because this word in its noun form refers to the tabernacle. So this, this is, again, is it the normal word you would use to say he just lived among us? It's a very more specific and technical word. It was he tabernacled among us is the idea. Now, most of us have an idea what the tabernacle was, but it might be good to have a refresher about its meaning. So, of course, the tabernacle was this wondrous place of worship in the form of a tent, and it was highly symbolic. Um, here, the holy place, and here, the whole holy of holies, or the most holy place, separated by this curtain. Outside, you had these pillars, and you had the courtyard. And, and by the way, there is symbolism in every part of this, um, both because it symbolizes spiritual realities about approaching God, as well as this symbolizes the universe as a whole. But I'm not, I'm not going to get into that right now. Instead, I want to focus on this. The tabernacle was a tent. So it was a tent that moved from place to place with the people, because God lived in a tent while the people lived in tents during the time period as they went from Egypt and settled into the promised land. And of course, after they became settled in houses, what did God do? He allowed David to build, or Solomon, to build a house for him to dwell among the people. But here's the idea. This is a way, this tent was a way for God to dwell with his people. So all the sacrifices and the offerings and the other things were part of the way that people could live with the holy God. They weren't just random rules or God's being a control freak. They were ways to protect them from the, the burning holiness of God, as well as to teach them what it means about this God. But overall, it did this so that, and here's the, here's the part I want to emphasize, so that God could be with his people. So the people could be with God in some way. It was a limited way, but it was better than nothing. And God did everything to make this happen. Now, here's the idea then. Jesus Christ is the Word became flesh 
Because God desires to tabernacle with you and I. He is the Word made flesh because God's heart has always to been, always to be with His people. That's why He gave the whole sacrificial system, all the laws. They weren't God being a control freak. This was a way in their time and place they could live with this holy God. But all this pointed ahead to Jesus Himself. Jesus is the way, the ultimate way, the final word by which mankind can come and live with God and God can dwell and be among them. That is his heart. That is his heart. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the reality. Now, let's talk then for a few minutes here about how this can change our interpretation of life. So what does it mean? How can this change our interpretation of life? Well, first of all, it can change our interpretation of God's love. Of God's love. Here's what we know. That God has given everything, everything to be with you. There is nothing he's held back. Can you imagine the condescension I I always want to say condensation with that word. So that to be the condensation, the humility of God becoming like us out of love. We've heard it all our lives. It's easy to take it for granted. It's a wondrous thing. Some of you know the name of Diane Fossey. She was a, a scientist who devoted her life to studying um, the silverback gorillas of Rwanda. And she took the incredible step of actually going and living with them. I forget exactly how long. Was it 23 years? It was a better part of two decades. And here's what she did. She studied them and she learned to walk like them. So she would crouch down and walk what they do. She would learn their body language and, and she would fully enmesh herself in their world as much as possible. She did this for the better part of 20 years. She grunted like they did. She, she ate food like they did. She lived among them. Now, that's an incredible thing. I, I can't imagine giving the better part of my, or the prime of my li- adult life for, to live like that as another species almost. But it pales in comparison to what God has done through Jesus for you. For me. Not only did he humble himself in this way, but we're told he did that, Philippians 3, in order to take the role of a servant and a sacrifice for us. The cross is God's living witness to how deeply he has loved you. And remember the logic of the cross. It is because Jesus is fully human that he could fully represent humans before God. And it's because God is fully, or Jesus is fully God, he could represent God before humans. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he can be the full human representative for all humanity because he himself is fully human. But he can also offer his own sinful, sinless God life on our behalf because he is fully God. And God himself is willing to accept this as a sacrifice. And that's the gospel, right? that Jesus is willing to forgive all of our sins because of what he has done on the cross. 
and to bring us into a relationship with himself. Now, again, as we've emphasized the last few weeks, that relationship only starts now. Its fullness is in the age to come. But God has given everything to be with you. Here, here's another way of putting this, but it's a, it's a way to think about it. God is willing to step into the mess in pain. This is who God is. He is the God who, though he's above us in every way, is willing to step into the boat of our humanity with all the pain, with all the sin, with all the mess. You know, Aristotle was probably the greatest Greek thinker that we're going to be influencing the, the people of John's time. Again, they were mainly Greek speakers. Many of them were Jews, but they were still Greek speakers. And Aristotle, had a, he was a believer in God, just like Plato was. But for both Plato and Aristotle, this wasn't a God you could interact with. In fact, Aristotle's view of God was, you know, God would only want to view and think about the best thing, the most pure thing. That's because of his nature as God. That's, that's what he would do. And what's the most pure and blessed thing that he could think about? Himself. And so for Aristotle, literally, God was endlessly contemplating only himself. How different is that from the God of the Bible? Who's willing to step into the boat of our humanity. Now, let's, get this, let's make this more specific. God is willing to enter into the mess of your life. God is willing to enter into the sin of your life. He's already done that through Jesus. But sometimes we may draw back. We may feel like there's so much wrong in our lives underneath the surface. There's so much weakness and pain and sin and, and other things that surely God doesn't want to fully dwell with me until I get these things right. And the incarnation, the gospel tells us, no, that's exactly wrong. God took into account all of your sin and all of your stupidity and mine before he decided to die for you. He already made the calculations. Nothing surprises him. And he has still given himself to you out of love. He's given everything to be with you. Third thing here. He has done all this through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in the past, God spoke through the prophets in various ways, different times. But in these last days, this period after the cross, he's spoken to us by his son, who is the exact representation of his being. And this is God's word, that it's through Jesus that we are offered this. Jesus is the way that God has become incarnate and walked into the boat with us. All right, one last thought here. One last thought. How does the incarnation change our interpretation of reality? Well, hopefully it should change it of God's love. And, oh, by the way, I meant to include this. Before we get to that last point, I, I love this verse in Ephesians that Paul models for us. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. And he says this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's he resorts to this spatial metaphor, long and high and deep. I want you to know this. And then he resorts to paradise. I want you to know the love that goes beyond knowledge. You will never come to the place where you know fully how deeply God loves you. The best analogy I can think of, um, can you really know fully the uh, Pacific Ocean? 
Some of us have been there. How many have been in, at the Pacific Ocean? How many have swam in the Pacific Ocean? How many have snorkeled or scuba dived in the Pacific Ocean? All right, that's cool. Me, me too, it's great. It's wonderful. I know the Pacific Ocean a little bit, and yet, do you know that out of all the ocean, less than 1% of that has been explored by humanity? How much less any one person? So I could spend the rest of my life getting to know the Pacific Ocean, and in certain contexts, that might be a very good thing for me to do, right? Especially if my job was tied to it, but I'd never come to the I would never be able to say I know fully. There's always so much more to learn. That's the same way with God's love. And the way we go beyond this then is asking, just like Paul did, God, show me. Help me to understand. Help me to understand how deeply you love me more this week. Help me to see it in the very gifts that you give me, the sunshine and the, and the warm uh, coffee and the sleep and the, and the rest and the family. Help me to see that in different ways. Help me to see it as I read your word. Pray that, that God would help you to understand. All right, final thing here. The incarnation changes our interpretation of also our role and relationships. And here's what I mean by that. We too are called to live incarnationally. We too are called to live incarnationally. What do I mean by this? Well, I'm thinking of a couple areas of our life. One is our job or our school, if we're in school, and the people we interact with. Uh, another is uh, any ministries or ways to impact the world that God calls us to. And another is just our relationships with people, especially as people who may be difficult or at least hard to know how to deal with sometimes. See, in all these areas, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ himself wants to extend and deepen his influence, his word, his, his purity, his love, but he wants to do that through you and through me. So that might mean that in your, uh, that in your job, you don't have to be like Diane Fossey and go live among the gorillas. Um, you might view your coworkers as that sometimes, but you don't have to do that. What you are called to do is simply to say, God, would you help me to bring your love, your grace, your wisdom, your truth, as much as possible in my job situation, among my coworkers, among the tasks that I'm doing? Help me to be the way that you bring healing or bring knowledge or bring insight or bring help. Help me, God, not to view this as something I'm just doing for myself, but rather you working this through me. Or you've got coworkers or classmates, or, or again, maybe it's a relationship that goes beyond this, and you've got some difficulty with, with people. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to reinterpret that to say, my goal here is nothing else and nothing more than to simply, as much as possible, as much as God gives me the ability to be Jesus in this situation. I'm not going to be perfect. I don't have to be. But rather to, to be the one that, seeks to bring God's love and God's grace and truth into this person's life. That might mean encouragement. It might mean help. It might mean grace. It might mean reproof in certain situations. But, but you know, here, here's the deal. And here's why I want to emphasize this. Too often in situations at work or school, but especially interpersonal communications, we, we, we tend to go into two different modes. One is the apathy mode. All right. And the other is the fix-it mode. And, the, and the, 
The fix-it mode, of course, is these are pretty easy to understand. I need to fix this person, or at least I need to fix their problems, or I need to fix this situation because I know what should be happening in this situation, and it's pretty obvious to me, and I need to use my effort, whatever control influence I had to fix this problem or this person. And, and of course, the fix-it mode is only a hair off from the control mode, right? But the problem is that most of these things we can't fix or control, so we bounce back over to this into the apathy mode. Well, just do your own thing. I'm, I'm going to take my hands off it. It's too messy. It's too much. You're not listening to me anyway. And, uh, you know, you'll be sorry one day. You made your bed lie in it. So we, we tend to bounce between these two sometimes, and maybe a little more on one side or another for, regarding our personality. But what if we rejected both those and said, okay, my mode is incarnation. I'm not here to fix this person or this situation necessarily. I'm here simply to bring God's love bring God's wisdom, bring God's presence as much as I can into this person's life or this situation I face. That's incarnational living. That is what Jesus has done for us. Now, I'm going to end with one thought. We may feel like, we may feel like, yeah, well, that sounds good in theory, but I could never do that. I could never change a person's life, live out the incarnation in that way. And that's true, we can't in ourselves. But God has a power to take two little tiny fish and a few barley rolls and feed 5,000 people when he receives it and breaks it and brings, distributes it as he sees fit. He's able to do that. I heard a story, I'm going to close with this. Italian violinist Niccolo Paganini. Sounds like a sandwich, doesn't it? Uh, he, was a, he was a great, great violinist. Some people say he was history's greatest violinist. And he swept through Europe in, uh, in the 1880s. His fame was something kind of like their equivalent of Beatlemania. His skills were so great, people said, oh, I must have made a pact with the devil or something. It's said that one evening Paganini was performing before a packed house. As he embarked on the final piece, one of the strings of his violin snapped. Undeterred, he kept playing. A few, few moments later, a second string snapped. Again, Paganini kept going, now reduced to playing a classical masterpiece on just two strings. And then the unbelievable happened. A third string snapped. Yet Paganini kept going, finishing the piece with just one string. So brilliant was his performance, the crowd rose to their feet to give him a standing ovation, but he wasn't finished. There was an encore to come, and raising his violin above his head, Paganini called to the crowd, Paganini, and one string. And with that, the orchestra struck up, and Paganini completed the encore on just one string. Now, where am I going with this? God's got a lot more talent than Paganini, even. He can do his masterwork with just the one string of my life or, or yours. We don't have to look at people who have three or four strings that seem to have it all together. That's not what God wants. He works through the small. He works through those who feel inadequate. And he does his great incarnational ministry. So this is how I believe understanding the incarnation can change us. It can change us by helping us reinterpret reality that God's love is not deterred by the circumstances. It's not weighed by these things. It is there, the fact that he became flesh for me, took on the cross for me. And nothing will separate me from that love. 
And then I had the ability to say, this is the greatest thing I know. And I want you as much as it's possible for me to live that out in whatever spheres of influence and people are around me that I have. This has been Your Word is a Lamp. Thank you for listening.